Well, welcome to Alpine Church. It's a blessing to be worshiping with you guys this morning. I'm grateful to be here. And I, I want to say again, if it's your first time at Alpine, thank you so much for checking us out. We hope that you feel very welcome today. Uh, we hope that we can help you pursue God today. My name is John Bellis. I'm the campus pastor at the Alpine Logan campus, and I also have the opportunity to serve on the executive team here at Alpine Church, and it's great to be back. And one last welcome I want to make sure I send out, and that's to those of you watching through our online service today. Thank you guys so much for joining in. Uh, we have spent the last five weeks exploring Mark chapter 12. So we, we spent five whole weeks in that chapter. We saw this series of questions that the religious leaders of Jesus' day threw at him, and they were trying to trap him. They weren't really seeking truth. They were trying to put him in a bad position. And we saw that Jesus answered each and every one of those questions with such skill and such wisdom that Mark says, after that, nobody dared ask him any more questions. And then Jesus turns the tables, and he asks a question. He asks a question about the Messiah, and we looked at that a couple of weeks ago. And then last week, we saw Jesus call out the religious leaders for their hypocrisy. And hopefully, this last week, we've taken an honest look at ourselves to see if there are areas in our lives where maybe we've been hypocritical. Now, last week's sermon led to a really great conversation in the men's group that I'm a part of about authenticity. We talked about the fact that the opposite of hypocrisy is not perfection. The opposite of hypocrisy is authenticity. And so I would just encourage you, if you're not connected to a small group, if you're not connected with a mentor, someone who can help you apply what we talk about on Sundays to the real world, I encourage you to get connected because it will be a blessing in your life. Now today we're going to jump into chapter 13, so if you want to turn there in your Bible or on your Bible app, that's where we're headed today. And here's what we're going to cover. We're going to talk about not one stone, signs of the times, and persecution. And the question that I want to frame today's sermon with is a question that I'll bet some of us, if not most of us, have asked over the last couple of years, maybe even within the last couple of weeks. And that question is, are we living in the end times? How many of you have asked that question over the last couple of years, have thought, man, maybe we're finally here? Are we living in the end times? You know, I, I watch a lot of sermons and a lot of Bible teachers on YouTube, and my suggested video feed has been packed over the last couple of weeks about how the events in Israel are ushering in the end times. A couple of months ago, my, my suggested videos were packed with all these videos about how the drying up of the Euphrates River proved that we're in the end times. It seems like everywhere you look, somebody is declaring we're at the end. And on one hand, it does seem like things are happening that have never happened before. But if you look at this issue historically, virtually every single generation has thought they were living in the end times. There have been so many failed predictions about the second coming of Jesus. We could spend the rest of the year just teaching on those. Here are some of the, the more recent ones from our lifetime that maybe you guys remember. Edgar Wisenant, who is a former NASA engineer, wrote the book, 88 Reasons the Rapture Will Happen in 1988. <laughs> I don't think it did, right? <laughs> he said that the rapture would take place on September 11th, 1988. The Heaven's Gate cult 
was led by Marshall Applewhite. They thought a spaceship was following the Hale-Bopp comet. And they thought that they needed to commit mass suicide, that they needed to reach a higher plane of existence before the earth was recycled. And so in March of 1997, 39 of them took their own lives. Anybody here remember the Y2K scare? Some of you were here in Y2K. Everybody thought that was going to be mass chaos because computers wouldn't be able to roll over from 1999 to 2000. So people were hoarding food and water and toilet paper. It was like the dress rehearsal for COVID, right? I had a, I had a family member who literally took every penny they had out of every bank account because they didn't think they'd be able to access it in the year 2000. Now, all of these seem pretty extreme, right? We think we would never do that. But, but this temptation to try and predict the day and time of Jesus' coming has affected men and women who have a much more balanced view, who are biblically literate, who love Jesus. Like Chuck Smith, the founder of Calvary Chapel, he predicted the rapture would happen in 1981, and it, it didn't. So let's approach this question like hopefully we would approach every question that we encounter, and that is, what does God's Word say about it? So we're going to pick up the text in Mark chapter 1, or Mark chapter 13, excuse me, beginning in verse 1. It says, as Jesus was leaving the temple that day, one of his disciples said, teacher, look at these magnificent buildings. Look at the impressive stones in the walls. Jesus replied, Yes, look at these great buildings, but they will be completely demolished. Not one stone will be left on top of another. So Jesus is leaving the temple, and he's on his way to the Mount of Olives, and one of his disciples says, Jesus, look at these amazing buildings. Look at the massive stones. Does anybody else find the humor in that? That this disciple is going to the God of the universe and talking about how impressive this building is? Like, I have to think in his mind, Jesus was chuckling, and he was going, have you seen the Milky Way? <laughs> have you seen the sun? You know, Victoria Falls, the, the rings around Saturn. I spoke all of that into existence. Now, from a human perspective, the temple was truly impressive. After Herod renovated it beginning in 19 BC, it was 500 yards long and 400 yards wide. Some of the stones that were used just to build the retaining wall for the temple mound were 50 feet wide, 25 feet long, and 15 feet deep. Imagine trying to move those without modern machinery. It was impressive. The temple was the hub of the sacrificial system for the Jews. And it was the place of the most religious activity. It was where they felt they could draw near to the presence of God. And in some ways, the temple became more important to the Jewish people than God himself. The temple became an idol. I think it's a reminder to us that sometimes the good things can become the worst idols. And I find it interesting that Jesus seems pretty matter-of-fact when he talks about the destruction of the temple. We don't see great sadness as he explains what's going to happen. Jesus knew the temple was only temporary. Jesus knew the temple was always meant to point to something greater. It was meant to point to Jesus. 
See, our ability to have a relationship with God, our ability to be in his presence was never meant to be through a building. It's through the finished work of Jesus Christ. Like Jesus even declared in Matthew 12, 6, that he is greater than the temple. Now imagine how absurd it must have seemed to the disciples for Jesus to say the temple was going to be destroyed to such a degree that not even one stone would be left on top of another. Surely he's speaking in hyperbole, right? He's just exaggerating to try and get his point across? No, he's not. That is exactly what happened. It's just one more reason I trust the accuracy and the historicity of the Bible. See, about 40 years after Jesus made this claim, there was a a widespread Jewish revolt against the Roman Empire. And the Romans completely annihilated them. And so the temple, being one of the strongest and most secure buildings in Jerusalem, the last surviving Jews, that's where they fled to. And the Romans surrounded the temple, and the temple was set fire to. Some some stories say that it was accidentally set fire to, but regardless, it was set fire. The fire was so strong that the gold ornate work in the roof of the temple melted and began to drip down through the walls. And the Romans wanted to make sure they recovered every ounce of the gold. So they literally dismantled the temple stone by stone. In fact, experts today still debate exactly where the walls of the temple were. It was destroyed so thoroughly. Now we've seen that Jesus doesn't seem overly emotional about the destruction of the temple, the building. But Jesus was heartbroken about what would happen to the Jewish people. We see that in Luke 19. This is as Jesus is coming into Jerusalem after his triumphal entry. It says, but as he came closer to Jerusalem and saw the city ahead, he began to weep. How I wish today that you of all people would understand the way to peace. But now it is too late and peace is hidden from your eyes. Before long, your enemies will build ramparts against your walls and encircle you and close in on you from every side. They will crush you into the ground and your children with you. Your enemies will not leave a single stone in place because you did not recognize it when God visited you. Jesus says, I wish that you of all people would understand the way to peace. If anybody should understand the way to peace, it was the Jewish nation, God's chosen people. He had given them his written word. He had given them the prophets but they didn't understand it. We see this reference again to not one single stone being left in place. See, the Jews didn't realize that they they just misunderstood the way to have peace with the Romans. They misunderstood how to have peace with God. The way to have peace with God wasn't through a temple. The way to have peace with God was through Jesus Christ, and they didn't see it. So I would imagine some of you here today are looking for peace. You're looking for peace in relationships. You're looking for peace even within your own conscience. You carry guilt. You carry shame. That peace can only be found through Jesus Christ. But through Jesus Christ, the Bible says we can have a peace that passes understanding. Now, after his death and resurrection, Jesus' followers began to understand that the temple was temporary. They knew that true peace came through Jesus. They knew that eventually we would be the house of God. In fact, Paul talks about it as he writes to the church in Ephesus. 
This is Ephesians chapter 2, verses 20 and 21. Paul says, you are members of God's family. Together, we are his house. And the cornerstone is Christ Jesus himself. We are carefully joined together in him, becoming a holy temple for the Lord. We are his house. We're his temple. Like how amazing is that, that when you and I put our faith in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit literally takes residence in us. That the capital C church, all of those who put their faith in Jesus Christ, become the temple of God. Now, we have the benefit of hindsight. We know that all of this played out just like Jesus said it would, but imagine the disciples. Imagine the disciples hearing this. Put yourself in their shoes. They've just been told that the building that is the center of their religious activity the building that allows them to draw near to the presence of God, the building that took 80 years to rebuild and renovate is going to be completely destroyed. That had to be such a punch to the gut. And so as you can imagine, they want to know more about when this is going to happen. So let's continue on in the passage as they ask that question. We're now in verses 3 through 6. It says, Later, Jesus sat on the Mount of Olives across the valley from the temple. Peter, James, John, and Andrew came to him privately and asked him, Tell us, when will all this happen? What sign will show us that these things are about to be fulfilled? Jesus replied, Don't let anyone mislead you, for many will come in my name, claiming I am the Messiah, and they will deceive many. The scene is happening on the Mount of Olives. Now, from the Mount of Olives, you could see the temple. So they're having this conversation with the temple in the background. And from this vantage point, Peter, James, John, and Andrew come to Jesus privately, and they want to know, when is this going to happen? And what are the signs that this is going to happen? I think it's interesting that they come to Jesus privately. See, I think they were scared what would happen if word got out that Jesus said the temple was going to be destroyed. And the reason I say that is Jesus had previously made a statement when he went to Jerusalem in John chapter 2. He said, destroy this temple and in three days I will rebuild it. Now, he was talking about his body. He was talking about his resurrection, but they didn't get it. Even the disciples didn't get it until after his resurrection. And they remembered what an uproar it caused when Jesus said the temple will be destroyed. So I think they're trying to keep this on the down low. They ask him, when will it happen? And what signs will you show us so that we know it's about to happen? Now, I think that they thought it was going to happen very soon. I think they thought it was going to happen in their lifetime. They say, what signs will you show us? They didn't say, what signs will you show the people? I think they fully believed that they were going to be alive at the destruction of the temple. Now, Jesus doesn't answer their question directly about when it will happen. In fact, if we look at Matthew's version of this encounter, Jesus is more explicit. He says, but of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father alone. So he doesn't tell them when it's going to happen. But he does give them a heads up on some of the signs that they can look for. Some of the signs that will show that things are beginning to progress. And so we see from the very beginning, followers of Jesus have been trying to figure out, when is this going to take place? What are the signs we should look for? And he starts out by saying, don't let anyone mislead you. Many 
will come in my name claiming I am the Messiah. He says, many will come. This isn't an isolated thing. You know, as I was preparing for the sermon, I read an article that was written in 2017, and the author of that article followed seven men from all different parts of the world who all claimed to be Jesus. Now, there were many more people at that time who were claiming to be Jesus, but the reason the author focused on these seven is they had all developed loyal followers. Each and every one of these men had people who genuinely thought they were Jesus. There was a Siberian traffic cop, a former MI5 British agent, and a Zambian taxi driver among the seven. Now, I hate to spoil the ending, guys, but when Jesus comes again, he's not going to have to tell anybody that he is Jesus. Okay, we're all going to know who the real Jesus is when he comes again. This is how it talks about it in Matthew 24. Verse 26 and 27, so if anyone tells you there he is out in the wilderness, do not go out. Or here he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as lightning that comes from the east is visible even in the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Everyone's going to know who the real Jesus is when he comes again. Amen. Jesus warns the disciples in three different places in Mark chapter 13 to beware of misinformation and false teaching. It's going to happen. It's going to happen in the church. It says often. It says many. The church is going to be attacked theologically often, and we need to be aware of it, and we need to be sensitive to it. That's why we talk all the time here at Alpine Church about core value number one. We look to God and His Word in all that we do. Anytime someone is proclaiming something that is different from Scripture, that's misinformation. That's false teaching. See, if these individuals back in 2017 had read their Bible, if they knew what the Bible said about Jesus' second coming, they wouldn't have been deceived by these frauds who were claiming to be Jesus. So be alert and compare everything you hear, even anything I would teach or any of the other Alpine pastors, compare it to what the Bible says. Make sure there's not misinformation. Jesus continues on with other signs in verse 7 and 8. He says, and you will hear of wars and threats of wars, but don't panic. Yes, these things must take place, but the end won't follow immediately. Nation will go to war against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in many parts of the world as well as famines, but this is only the first of the birth pains with more to come. So when you read that, you can kind of see why every generation thought they were in the end times. Somebody is always fighting someone. You know, in the last 3,400 years, there have only been 268 that didn't have war. And that's if we define war as an active conflict that has killed more than 1,000 people. That's the definition of war. If we define it like that, in the last 3,400 years, only 268 didn't have war. Jesus tells us, don't panic over these things. It doesn't mean that we're in the end times. They're a symptom of living in a broken and fallen world that's mired by sin. You and I don't have to be anxious over these things. We have that peace that passes understanding that was talked about earlier in the passage. See, one of the ways we can look at all this is that this is evidence that things are going to play out just like Jesus said it would. That this is just another reason to trust in the accuracy of the Bible because the things Jesus said were going to happen are happening and have been happening. 
In addition to wars, Jesus mentions earthquakes and famines. He says that these are just the first of the birth pains. Now, I don't want to teach this dogmatically because I'm not 100% sure this is true, but I've often wondered if the birth pains analogy means that the frequency and the severity of these things is going to get worse as we get closer to the end. So that's what happens with birth pains, right? At least that's what my wife tells me. I've never experienced them. <laughs> but the closer you get to delivery, the more frequent and more intense the contractions are. So maybe that's what Jesus is saying here. Again, I'm not 100% sure. All of this sounds pretty bleak. And as we dig into the passage, it only gets worse. But I would just remind you, this is just proof as these things play out that Jesus is who he says he is and Jesus knew the end from the beginning. Let's move on to verse 9. He says, when these things begin to happen, watch out. You will be handed over to the local councils and beaten in the synagogues. You will stand trial before governors and kings because you are my followers. But this will be your opportunity to tell them about me, for the good news must first be preached to all nations. Jesus promises that believers will face persecution because of him. That's a promise. We're going to face persecution. Now, this passage has already been fulfilled to some degree. This is one of those already not yet passages where clearly some of this has already been fulfilled, right? Look at the first century church. They were beaten in the synagogues. They were handed over to the local councils. They did stand trial before kings and governors. Read the book of Acts. All that happened, but it's still happening today, and it's going to continue to happen. But notice the encouragement Jesus gives his disciples. He says that when this happens, what? This will be your opportunity to tell them about me. That this persecution is going to be the catalyst that launches the gospel. And that's exactly what happened in Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8, right after Stephen was martyred, we read the following in verse 1. It says, A great wave of persecution began that day, sweeping over the church in Jerusalem. And all the believers except the apostles were scattered through the regions of Judea and Samaria. And we drop down a couple of verses to verse 4. But the believers who were scattered... Preach the good news about Jesus wherever they went. Philip, for example, went to the city of Samaria and told the people there about the Messiah. The crowds listened intently to Philip because they were eager to hear his message and see the miraculous signs he did. Persecution was a catalyst to spread the gospel. Jesus said, don't panic. I know it seems horrible, but what this is going to do is it's going to launch the gospel. And it continues to do that today. In the parts of this world right now where the church is under the greatest persecution, that's where you see the gospel blowing up. Places like China and the Middle East and North Korea, waves of people are coming to Christ in those areas because of the persecution. I, I hate to even use the word persecution for Christians in the United States. I think it does a disservice to our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world who are really experiencing persecution, but certainly the level of hostility to Christianity and the teachings of the Bible is on the increase in the United States. And that's not a political statement. I don't care which side of the aisle you're on. That's just the reality. And I'll be honest, there's a part of that that makes me mad and gets me frustrated. But there's a part of that that gives me hope because it's going to be a catalyst for the, for the gospel. 
It's going to motivate us to spread the good news. It's going to give us more chances to talk about the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. And the Holy Spirit's going to help us do that. Jesus continues on. He says, but when you are arrested and stand trial, don't worry in advance about what to say. Just say what God tells you at the time, for it is not you who will be speaking, but the Holy Spirit. A brother will betray brother to death. A father will betray his own child. And children will rebel against their parents and cause them to be killed. Jesus tells us not to worry in advance about what to say. And I think the key word there is worry. The reason I say that, in, in 1 Peter 3.15, we're told to be prepared to always give an answer to anyone who asks for the hope that we have in Jesus. So we're supposed to be prepared. I think that means we should be able to articulate the gospel, that every follower of Jesus ought to be able in 30 to 45 seconds articulate the gospel. We ought to be able to talk about the sin and brokenness of humanity that we've been separated from our Creator, but that God didn't leave us in that condition, that because God loved us so much, He sent His Son into the world, and He lived the perfect life that none of us could live, and He went to the cross, and there He paid the debt that I should have paid, and we can come to Him and ask for forgiveness. We can ask Him to be Lord and Savior, and that relationship can be restored. So I should be prepared to share the gospel, but I don't have to worry about the exact words. I don't have to worry about the questions I might get asked. I don't have to worry about the consequences of how I answer those questions because the Holy Spirit's going to be there and the Holy Spirit's going to speak through me and the Holy Spirit's going to make sure that God's purposes are accomplished. We also see in this section of the passage just how deep the betrayal is going to be. The brother will betray a brother. A father will betray their son. Children will betray their parents. That's why in Luke 14, Jesus said, if anyone comes to me, they have to hate their father and mother and their brother and sister and their wife and children. They have to hate their own life or they're not worthy to be my disciple. He doesn't literally mean that we need to hate our family, but he means we need to love him more. We need to say, Jesus, even if I lose everything else, you're worth it. I recognize that some of you in here today, you've, you've fought that battle. You've lost relationships with family members because you've decided to trust in the biblical Jesus. And if that's you, I want to remind you that Jesus says, anyone who has given up things on earth here for the kingdom, he's going to reward. So hang in there. He's got a blessing for you. He's got a reward for you if that's happened. You know, my, my wife gets the magazine, Voice of the Martyrs, delivered to our home every month. And every single issue, there's a story about someone whose own parents tried to kill them because they turned to Jesus. So what happened in the early church, it's happening right now, and it's going to continue to happen as we get closer to the end times. So that brings us back to the question that we led off the sermon with, are we living in the end times? I can tell you with 100% certainty, I'm not sure, (laughs) I don't know, I can promise you we're closer today than we were yesterday, based upon my eschatological view, which isn't shared with every believer, and that's okay. It's not an essential thing. I think some things have happened that had to happen before the second coming, such as the reestablishment of the nation of Israel. So I I think some things that have happened that are moving us closer. I can say that the signs that we see around us are just proof that Jesus was right. 
that these things are going to happen as we head closer to the end times. So the reality is Christians have debated for century about the timing of this. But the one thing all believers are united on is Jesus is coming again. He is coming back. And so I want to wrap up with one last verse, Mark 13, 13. And everyone will hate you because you are my followers, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. The word that's translated endures here is hypomony. And what it literally means is to stand underneath. So we're not supposed to try and escape the persecution. We're not supposed to try and run from it. We're supposed to stand underneath it. We're supposed to endure it. We're supposed to persevere through it. So the question that I want to ask each of you is, if we are in the end times, are you living like it? Are you living like we're in the end times if you think that we are? Are you preparing yourself to endure? Are you sharing the gospel with people you love like the time is short? Are you prepared to give an answer for the hope that you have in Jesus Christ? I hope we're living like we're in the end times, whether we are or not. And if you're here today and you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ, I would ask you the same question. Are you living like we're in the end times? Do you have a sense of urgency to have your sins forgiven and your relationship with God restored? Because whether we're in the end times or not, none of us have a guarantee about tomorrow. And the Bible is clear, there's no second chances once we pass from this life to the next. So if you want to talk more about starting a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, if you want to experience that peace that passes understanding that so many of us in this room have experienced, we'd love to have that conversation with you. We'd love to answer your questions after the service. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I, I don't know when you're coming again. I just, you know, I confess it sure seems to me that some things are happening that are are preparing the way for your second coming. But the thing I'm grateful for, God, is I know with 100% certainty you're coming again. I don't know when, but I know that you are, and I know that you're going to make every wrong right. I know that we're going to enjoy an eternity with you. So, Jesus, we thank you. We thank you that one day every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that you are Lord, that you are King of kings. But we voluntarily do that right now. We voluntarily lift up our gratitude to you. That's all we have. Our life, our heart, and our thankfulness for what you've done for us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.